You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. You know, I thanked uh, Jack Phelps for preaching for me last week, but I, I should have also thanked our elders for Uh, leading the worship service. Uh, Thank you for doing that. We are uh, picking up uh, where I left off when uh, I went to Seattle, and that's in Luke's Gospel. And so if you could open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, although that phrase, Sermon on the Mount, doesn't actually show up in uh, Luke. Well, it doesn't show up in Matthew either. But we're looking at this one body of teaching that has historically been called the Sermon on the Mount. So Luke chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, we can get a Bible to you. Uh, I like to go and and kind of pick at those verses midway through the sermon. So it's helpful to have uh, God's Scripture open before you. We can get a Bible to you if you wave your hand. So Luke chapter 6 is where we are. Little theologians, here's what I'd like for you guys to do. Oh, by the way, a little bit of news about the preaching schedule. Um, We're going to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. Uh, I uh, have prepared six sermons uh, out of the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a prophet that writes to a people that are arguing with God, and I want to look at those arguments because I think we uh, today argue with God in much the same way. So there's six individual arguments with God in Malachi, and I want to preach a sermon on each of those debates or arguments. But uh, first, we're going to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to look at four of the, uh, four of the Beatitudes. There's, there's only four here in uh, Luke's Gospel. And next week, we'll look at four woes, okay? So uh, this morning, happy sermon on happiness. Next week, a sad sermon on the woes that are in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, the title for this sermon is Happiness Before God. Next week, Wretchedness Before God. So I hope there's a good turnout. Uh, Then maybe the Sunday after that, that would be the low turnout. Guy only talks about wretchedness. Um, Sermon on the Mount is where we are. Little theologians, look, you just need to draw a picture of two worlds. That's it. Two worlds. That's easy, right? You live in two worlds. You live in the world of this world, everything, but you also live in the world of the church. You live in the world of the church. And those worlds function differently. So you're going to draw a picture of two. Two worlds. Uh, Try that out. Uh, Luke chapter 6 is where we are. We're just going to look at verses uh, 20 through 23. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer before we read God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for speaking to us, not leaving us to wander, not leaving us to just kind of float through the wind or be tossed and turned in the sea, as Paul says. Uh, Thank You for speaking to us that we might know what to believe and how to behave. Now, Holy Spirit, instruct us through my lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 6, just verses 20 through 23. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, 
for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is the word of our Lord. So these statements uh, end up uh, in the history of the church being called Beatitudes, these uh, blessed are you kinds of statements. And the reason they're called that is in the Latin Bible, um, the, uh, the word beati shows up at the beginning of each of these verses. Uh, sounds like uh, beautiful. Um, it's uh, sometimes in English translated as uh, blessed. Uh, the word in the Greek is pretty simple. It's makarios and it means uh, happiness. But here's, here's what's difficult about how the word happiness is clearly being used here. When we think about happiness, we think about just me and my own happiness. We have, I think, uh, as it were, a solo view of happiness. Happiness is me having these private wishes and then those private wishes being met by something or someone. And, and happiness to us ends up being a largely private affair. And makarios can certainly be uh, used in that way. There's a couple of uh, instances of it being used that way in Scripture where it just seems to be a, a bit of a private kind of happiness. And we can all have that conversation, can't we, about those things that make us happy. Um, I don't have any example of this taking place because it's a little odd, but I can imagine uh, two Christians um, having a discussion about the, the things that make them happy. Maybe they'll talk about a uh, job or promotion uh, or uh, upcoming vacation or whatever it is. But do you think that, that that conversation about your own happiness, do you think it would change if God walked into the room? God doesn't have a body, I know. Uh, our little theologians know that. But, but if God is there, he walks into the room, is there any change? Would then the, that discussion about happiness be somehow counterbalanced in a way? And, and whatever you think about that situation of God being in the room, that's how we're to understand makarios. Uh, that's why uh, the, uh, a lot of English versions translate the word not as happiness, but as blessedness, because blessedness uh, is happiness before another. It's the kind of happiness that's beyond just your, your own affections or your own appetite, your own desire. That's, that's usually the way we talk about happiness. But blessedness, beati, uh, makarios here, that refers to happiness before someone else. It's happiness not just because I've got something that I want. It's happiness when God's in the room. It's happiness that makes Him happy, as it were. And so, blessedness really is better than happiness. You see, if our happiness is all about our private wishes, at some point, we're going to begin to ask, how can I be happy in a world with work that I don't like to do? sorrow that I have to suffer, death of people whom I love. If happiness is all about private wishes, how are you going to be happy in a world like that? At some point, uh, you're going to have to eradicate the problems in the world that all of us see in order for you to be happy. But there is a happiness in this life 
that is a happiness that comes out of our relationship with God. When God's in the room, there can be happiness even amidst the toil of work, even amidst sorrow, even amidst death. There can be happiness. That's why I think the the big idea of this passage is that our present life is a life in the kingdom of God and it is a gift to us. Christian, I'm speaking to you. Our present life right now, despite the, the toil, the hurt, the sorrows that we witness outside of us and within us, the life that we live right now is a life in the kingdom of God under His reign, and it is a gift to us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying that to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... You live and dwell, you breathe, you exist within the kingdom of God. And the life that you live is a gift because you're a part of that kingdom. I just want to do something really fast right now, and I just want to review my sermon two weeks ago. That was a sermon in which I just just introduced the Sermon on the Mount and how best to read and understand the Sermon on the Mount. I want to to remind you of a couple of things from that sermon. Uh, First of all, remember the crowd, the audience. You know, Jesus is drawing to Himself these disciples in the Gospel we, we are looking at. He's just called those disciples. And He's speaking to those disciples, but Luke is careful to make sure that we know that there is a multinational crowd around the disciples. So get what's happening here. Jesus is teaching His disciples, but it's not really private teaching because there is a huge crowd all around this body of teaching. It's, in many ways, it's a sermon to the disciples first, but delivering that sermon to the disciples is witnessed by those who may not be His disciples. So the audience is important because Jesus, Luke says, lifted His eyes on His disciples. Verse 20 of our passage. He lifted His eyes on His disciples. The the core of the sermon is meant for believers. It's meant for people who are united to Christ Jesus. It's meant for, for people that are actually called to be different in this world, to stand out in this world, to exercise their life on this world being citizens not of this world, but citizens in heaven. Jesus just is speaking to those kinds of people, people united to Him in faith. And that's very important. And the second uh, thing I want to remind you of from, last, uh, from two weeks ago is that Jesus is presupposing a responsibility before these disciples. Now, the first one is that Jesus actually loves and cares for them. That's His first responsibility. He will never leave or forsake them. He has called them. He has anointed them. He has named them. He has, in Mark chapter 3, desired them. They are His. And He has that responsibility to care for Him. Christians, you need to understand that you are not sometimes weak before God. You are always weak and feeble before God. And you need Jesus to be responsible for you, to care for you. Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 when he says that we are to walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Christians, you need Jesus. And that's something that's important that's, that Jesus presupposes when He's delivering this sermon. These people need Me. I have to comfort them. I have to guide them. I have to nurse them. So He, proposes, he's, he presupposes that uh, these are people that need His care, and He also presupposes that His kingdom is here, but it hasn't been fully consummated. Uh, two weeks ago, I gave the illustration of D-Day in 1944. 
Um, that's, that's the day when the beach of Normandy was stormed. It was the beginning of the end, but really the end wasn't until 1945, the next year, VE Day. And, and such is the kingdom. It's, it's inaugurated. It is here. The kingdom of God is present with us right now. But we only experience it partially. And there will come a time when we experience the kingdom fully at Jesus' second coming. So Jesus presupposes that these are my kids, my children. I have to care for them. I have to nurture them. They are weak all the time. Jesus presupposes that. And he also presupposes that my kingdom is here, but they're living in this time period that's the already and the not yet. Right, this is a famous phrase from G.E. Ladd in the 1970s, uh, that, Jesus is, that the kingdom of God is already here, but there's a sense in which it's not yet here. It's here, but not yet. Jesus presupposes this, and, and that, that's kind of the bedrock for this sermon. You kind of need to know those things, that uh, the audience is largely for the disciples, those united to Jesus in faith, and that Jesus has a responsibility to care for the needy, and he knows that, and that Jesus has taught them that the kingdom is inaugurated, but is not fully consummated, which will happen in the future. I think that all of this can be summarized this way. Imagine Jesus sitting around with his disciples and he's telling them that, look, I get how the world works, the world that you know of, the world that you grew up in. Because Jesus sees that outer ring of that multinational crowd and Jesus says, I know this world. I know how it works. But I'm calling you as this inner ring to be a part of a special kingdom, the inaugurated kingdom of God. And he knows that when he dies, when he is resurrected, he is going to leave these disciples to have to sort through that. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, you should know that you're sorting through that as well. I see elements of the kingdom of God, but I also know to expect more in the future. And i got to make decisions in that kind of world. I have to go out into the world and be impacted by distractions, by sin, by temptations. And at the same time, I'm called to be a holy representative of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, in this world. I live in a world in which decay is taking lives. I see them drop. I live in a world in which there is rampant injustice. Uh, I live in a world where uh, there is not only the poverty of others, but there's my own poverty. I live in a world in which I have to uh, live as an ambassador of the gospel of grace, but at the same time, I struggle mightily with sin. And that's our world. A man by the name of uh, Richard Mao wrote a book called Calvinism in the Las Vegas airport. Uh, kind of an interesting title, but let me, let me read to you something he says. He says, Las Vegas is a counterfeit version of the New Jerusalem, and it shares something of the glorious reality it mocks, but it cannot really chase the night away or put it into our sorrows. It calls to us, but it does not deliver on its promises. No genuine security or satisfaction is to be found within its dazzling casino walls. It does not quiet the profound restlessness of our hearts. And I hope that resonates with you as if you're here this morning as a Christian, that I am a Christian, but I still know how that world works. And I know that this world is not going to satisfy my desires, and yet I'm still tempted by it. Calvinism in a Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas airport. It's a nice, uh, nice little book.
I want to just say a, a couple of quick things about these Beatitudes. Uh, and this I want you to hear as being very important. That first Beatitude, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Sinclair Ferguson says all of the other Beatitudes actually feed on this one and flow from this one. And I earnestly agree with him. All of the Beatitudes flow from this first one. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Another commentator, a man by the name of John Nolan, says that all of the other Beatitudes are actually manifestations of this one. The hunger, the weeping, the persecution, those are actually manifestations of this Beatitude. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor, Matthew says, is not a poor in monetary terms, but a poor in spirit, uh, lowercase s, a poverty of spirit. It's a poverty of the inner life. It's a poverty of um, something deep within us, an awareness of who we are perhaps, um, an acknowledgement of who God is. But it's not a financial poverty. You see, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't actually... Uh, lift up poverty as being the best way to live your life, nor does the Bible lift up possessing many, uh, many, uh, having many possessions as being the uh, source and comfort in life. The Bible seems to allow people to be poor, although we're called to care for them. And the Bible seems to uh, allow for uh, wealth. Uh, the tax collectors are, uh, they must be honest, but they're apparently allowed to be wealthy. The kind of poverty that Luke or that Jesus is talking about is the kind of poverty that enables you to acknowledge something about yourself as a Christian. If you're wealthy, you are still called to be poor in spirit. You need to understand yourself as spiritually poor. That your wealth can't be treated as your God. That the wealth that you possess cannot be the source of consolation and hope. You have to understand as a wealthy person who you really are. A wealthy person is called to be poor in spirit. But so too is someone who is materially poor called to be poor in spirit. They ought not to see themselves as tragically discontented, coveting what everyone else has. Nor can they be sanctimonious about their poverty and judgmental towards those who have wealth. And someone who's materially poor is just like the wealthy person called to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to understand who you are. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you realize that you are always and forever dependent upon Christ Jesus? That you never grow to such a degree in your sanctification that you can be above Jesus? That there are areas of ministry in the church that you should never have to do because you've been a Christian a lot longer than most other people. That sounds like a silly example. But we should be cultivating this in our lives, understanding how dependent we are on the perfect work of another. And that ought to be experienced as an expression of our church in terms of the humility of our church. You know, of course, that this kingdom of God is not yours. He says, for yours is the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that the kingdom of God belongs to you. Not even as a Christian. 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I think this expression most means this, that the kingdom is yours because you belong in it. As a Christian, you are part of God's rule. And God has a mission. It's, it's not like you're called to be um, a, the liege of the emperor to work in the emperor's office and then you can go out into the world and you can lord your authority over everyone. It's not your kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And you belong in it through the work of Jesus Christ. You live a life that is a part of His rule. Blessed are you who are poor. You who understand who you are as a Christian, always dependent upon the perfect Lord. For yours is the kingdom of God. God has a rule, a sovereignty, a mission. And you're a part of that. You belong to Him. There's no pomp. There's no boasting. It's not your kingdom. It's His kingdom. But you have a part in it. And Christian, we need to cultivate this understanding. And part of the way we cultivate it, I think, is where Jesus goes next. Look what He says. He talks about hunger and weeping in verse 21. I love this definition of what that hunger is. Wouldn't you like to know what that is? What is that hunger? Is it, is it just desiring food? Is it a diet verse? I'm sure it's been used that way. I don't have an example, but I'm sure it has been. I like how one commentator describes this hunger as painfully deficient in things needful for life. Painfully deficient in things needful for life. Hendrickson says that the hunger is a deep yearning for mercy, for forgiveness, for peace of mind and heart, for purity and holiness, fellowship with God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You know, Jesus humbled Himself and He was exalted. He humbled Himself and He was exalted. Do we think that we humble ourselves only in our conversion, but we don't humble ourselves over the course of our Christian life? I think of Luke chapter 18, when Jesus gives an example of two men who are praying. And the Pharisee prays, God, I thank You that I'm not like other men. And he goes on with this list of grotesque sins. And yet it's the tax collector who makes this prayer, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the disciples cultivate in their life, that in their life day by day. They're always crying out to God for mercy, not in doubt or a lack of assurance, but they know that they need his mercy. Matthew captures the phrase, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For righteousness. I don't care if I have food for my stomach. I want that which He says I need. My wonderful Maker and God. That's the hunger. It's a deep hunger for those things that God says you should have. Righteousness that is pleasing to Him. A life that is an acceptable offering to Him. That's the hunger. And we're to hunger now. And Jesus goes on, He says, we're to weep now. That weeping is, is not a mournfulness or a melancholy attitude. I know some of you are naturally like that. Uh, this, is, this is not a praise for your temperament. 
I cry all the time. I weep all the time. I'm almost always mournful, and I like melancholic music. This is not your verse. This weeping now is a reference to weeping for the continued presence of sin in our lives. Jesus' kingdom has come. God's reign is in our midst. God's reign is within us. And yet, I continue to struggle with sin. You know, we live in a world in which we have uh, screens in front of us all the time. And uh, living your life through a screen can be very desensitizing. And I wonder if as the church we are desensitized to our sin. I'm not trying to turn this into a morbid exercise of uh, sitting in a dark corner contemplating our sin. But Jesus seems to say that we should have an emotional hurt with regards to our sin that would cause us to weep. That's just hard to understand. I don't completely get it. The, the word really, it just means weeping. And I don't think we're supposed to just cry all the time. I'm so thankful no one here is crying right now. But we should have a continued awareness of sin that is indwelling, that is with us. We should be aware of that. Do you know that I think every prophet, I can't prove that every prophet in the Old Testament, I didn't study, but many prophets, and I want to say all of the prophets, uh, they cried their ears out, or ears, their eyes out for the sin of the world. They looked out on the world and they noticed the world's sin, a refusal to hallow the name of their God. And they cried over that. Psalm 119, David says, My eyes shed rivers of tears for all those who do not keep your law. Sometimes we look out at the world and we're, we're angry because the world has an unfair tax structure. Or we're, we're angry because um, the world hasn't cultivated the kind of economy that I can thrive in. But do we look out at the world and do we mourn that the world hates God? Do we mourn over that? David does. And so the weeping is, is not simply a, a mournfulness with regards to the sin in your own heart, which you have to be aware of, but it's also a mournfulness for a world that refuses to hallow our God. Hunger and weeping. It's almost as if Jesus could stop right there and let us chew on it a little bit. But Jesus suddenly gets very, very uh, physical, very real. Verse 22 and 23 he talks about the hatred and the exclusion, the persecution that we are to endure as Christians. And think about this. Jesus has said, blessed are the hungry and blessed are those who are weeping. Blessed are those who have an awareness of their poverty and spirit. I'm not at the top of my game. If I'm aware of those things, how am I going to go out into a world that is filled with persecution? I'm poor. I'm hungry. I'm weeping. I'm not at the top of my game. But God is at the top of His game. And the persecution that we endure for the name of Jesus, not just any persecution, but persecution for the name of Jesus, not persecution for my race, for my employment, persecution that I experience because of my personal beliefs or opinions, but persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. Even as I'm suffering that persecution, God's kingdom reigns. I want that to be a source of encouragement because Jesus knows very well that the life of the disciples is a hard life. You know how he knows. 
He is the one who is rejected not only by the religious leaders, but by the entire world. He was the one who was killed unjustly. He was the one who was scandalized. He was the one who was rejected even by intimate friends. He knows. And yet in his hatred and his rejection, did God's kingdom falter? Did it slip backwards? It didn't. And amidst the hatred being reviled for the name of our Lord and Savior, even then, as we suffer, God's kingdom goes forth. There's a few quick things to tie this together. What does it look like to accept and apply this kind of life today? One of the commentators that I'm reading says that he remembers, uh, he's from uh, Scotland, he remembers moving to America and things being very different for him. But maybe there's some here who have traveled to very exotic locations that are very different from America, uh, to a Tibet or a Tangiers or a Bangalore, some place that's just remarkably different. And when you go to places like that, which I've never done, I'm wondering if you're able to pick out those things that are familiar. Yes, people here still love their children, want to say family, but then all of the differences, not just the language, but the cultural understanding all of those differences in the world. And, you know, we live in a place like that. There's a sense in which all of us are international travelers. All of us work for the BBC, in a sense. Because as a Christian, we live in a world that doesn't understand us. We live in a world that ought to hate us. If they, if they knew who we were, people who stand for the glory of Jesus Christ, the very one you refuse to believe, if the world really knew that, of course, of course, it would be, we would see it as a foreign place. I kind of fit, but I also kind of don't fit. There are aspects of the world I get, but a whole lot of people here don't get me and don't like me. You know, we're always learning how to live life in the kingdom, and we're always unlearning how to live life in the world. Do you hear me say that? We're always living how to, learning how to live life in the kingdom, but we're also, at the same time, we're unlearning how to live life in this world. There's a sense in which, as Christians, we just know both. And sometimes I want to live the life that my Heavenly Father has for me as a citizen in heaven, but sometimes life in the world, I'm just, I'm just good at it, and I derive a great deal of joy from it. That's the normal Christian life. It's learning how to live in this kingdom that doesn't belong to us, the kingdom of the reign of our Heavenly Father, and unlearning life in a world that we know maybe a bit better, at least experientially. I think there's just a few things that I want to part with, and then we'll look next week at the woes. Uh, What Jesus is teaching us so far is he's saying that we're called to closely understand our identities. There's a sense in which Jesus is calling us to be reflective Christians. Every Christian has to understand what it's like living in a place surrounded by people who say they don't depend on God. But you as a Christian say that you do. You live your life depending upon God for all things, And yet, that's not how the world lives. And you're called to understand your identity to such a degree that you can go out into that world and engage that world, but also understand who you are. I'm dependent upon God. He rules my life. He tells me what to think, what to say, what to do. I can do none other than that. 
Christian is a, is a reflective religion. Maybe, maybe purveyors of every religion would say the same thing. But I think Jesus is challenging the disciples to be reflective about who they are being united to him. They're going out into a world filled with people who are, unit, who are not united to him. They need to see their dependency upon God. And they need to see that even amidst difficult circumstances. They need to see their sinfulness. They need to always be humble because they know their sin more and more, whereas their neighbors in the world don't know their sin. They don't know the God of whom their sin is a transgression against. Jesus is calling us to understand our our identities, to be reflective Christians. I think in these first uh, four Beatitudes, Jesus is also telling us to look forward to the day when there is no abiding sin, there is no hunger, there is no weeping, and there is no persecution. Jesus died to secure our salvation in the present, but also in the future. And you're foolish if you're a Christian who refuses to look forward to that day when your Lord and Savior returns physically, making His presence known and guiding you into the new heavens and the new earth. We're called to reflect upon our identities in a confusing world, but we're also called to look forward to something greater. It's not pie-in-the-sky hope. It's not naive optimism. It's the promise of our salvation that Jesus secured for us. I think those are two things. And let me just offer a third thing. I don't know why I'm finishing here. We're called to be reflective as Christians. That's number one. Um, We're called to hope for a day when this sin no longer harasses. But we're also called to hold a little loosely some things that make us real comfortable. It is good to have a safe and happy and even luxurious life. These are Western ideals. These are good things. Praise be to God that we live in a land in which even poor people are actually wealthy, in which we can safely worship God. Praise be to God that we live in a place where we have those freedoms. But I suspect that we're going to realize more and more over time that we are holding on to these Western ideals maybe a little bit too tightly. That we we may be called as Christians to live in a world that doesn't give us those ideals. Maybe. Just something to entertain. Because even in other Western nations, Christians in England and in France, these are folks whom I actually know, uh, they're enduring affliction that we have not had to endure yet. And these Christians are beginning to understand what are those things really worth fighting for and what are those things that they need to be willing to set aside. And they're setting aside some pretty important things. A degree of safety, a degree of um, safety in terms of the neighbors they're living next to, that they have been thoroughly vetted by the law. Um, uh, Choices about education of their children. Uh, the ability to uh, keep all of the money that they actually earn, uh, the ability to have uh, a job that they've actually been trained for. Uh, These are good things, but there are already Christians in England and in France whom I know of who are losing these things. And it may be that we just need to hold some of these ideals a little bit more loosely, that we might understand that even amidst the persecution, we still belong to the winning team. Christians are called to be reflective about their identities, even though they live in a distracted, confusing world. 
They are called to vigilantly look forward to the day when there is no abiding sin, no hunger, no weeping, no persecution. And they also ought to hold a little loosely some of those luxuries that they thought were part and partial with being a Christian. Okay, so those are three ways of accepting and applying this kind of life. Next week, we'll look at the four woes. Uh, The four uh, Beatitudes actually match up against the four woes. Uh, Just remember this, our present life in the kingdom of God is a gift to the followers of Christ Jesus. Let me uh, pray for us and we'll confess faith. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that you would make us thoughtful over your word as we go into this afternoon and go into this week. May your word guide us and control us in Jesus' name. Amen.